0: You're from England, mm-hmm. you say you're from a Protestant background, even if you're not practising now. Why do you support Irish unity? Because Northern Ireland doesn't work. Paul Gosling has written for almost every British broadsheet newspaper, has been a Labour councillor in Leicester, and is the author of several books. His most recent work argues for a united Ireland and sets out how it could come about. Would Irish unity be further on, do you think, if Sinn Féin didn't exist?
1: Yes. There are parts of Sinn Féin that believe the best prospects for them winning a vote is to make Northern Ireland a failed state.
0: He worked as an advisor to SDLP MLA at McLaughlin and was dismayed by some of what he saw in Stormont.
1: Everyone knows that Stormont uh, has difficulties, but it is a completely dysfunctional system. Um, I was completely appalled. Uh, The difficulty getting things done uh, were just astonishing.
0: I travelled to his home in London, Derry, to discuss how an English Protestant has become a leading proponent of Irish unity in Derry.
1: We have to recognise that actually, Southern Ireland is better at government than Northern Ireland is. Actually, Brexit showed it's better at government than the UK is.
0: Paul, you're from England. Yeah. You've lived in Northern Ireland for what? More than twenty years. Twenty-three years. Now. Twenty-three years. How did you come here? Why, why have you stayed?
1: 23 years ago, um, I was in a relationship with my ex-wife, who's German, who hated England. And um, Northern Ireland had emerged from the Troubles. It looked like quite an exciting place to live in terms of, you know, the peace bedding down, opportunities here. So Derry was the obvious place. Prior to leaving
0: England, you were a Labour councillor there. Tell me a bit about that aspect of your life.
1: I was on the left of the party. I was in dispute quite a lot of the time with the local MP, Keith Faz. We fell out very badly over Satanic Verses, which I thought was a brilliant novel and he thought should be banned. And I fell out with people there. And clearly there wasn't a future for me in terms of the council. So I did other things. I decided journalism was actually, in a sense, more interesting than politics.
0: And politics can be very frustrating. And speaking of frustration, you've just emerged, I suppose, from a period working for the SDLP MLA in McLaughlin in Stormont, or for, for her. What what was that like? I mean, you would have had preconceived ideas of what Stormont is like, probably fairly unflattering ones, if you're like the typical person. What was it like to be actually inside the system? Uh, my view wasn't as unflattering beforehand as it was afterwards. Um,
1: yeah, everyone knows that Stormont uh, has difficulties, but it is a completely dysfunctional system. Um, I was completely appalled. Uh, I mean, the difficulty getting things done uh, were just astonishing. There is this sense in some of the departments, I'd say particularly within the Department for Infrastructure, that they don't expect to be told what to do, nor actually will they respond well to being asked what, uh, in terms of what needs to be done. Um, and I think there is also a difficulty in terms of getting things done for the Northwest. I, I mean, I'll give you an example. Before I worked for an MLA, I spoke to a senior unionist politician who I got on well with, who said, look, to be honest, on a basis for value for money, I could never support any major road schemes in the Northwest.
0: And when, when, when he talked about value for money, did he mean that there just aren't enough people to justify yes. major roads? Okay. Yes, yes. I mean he wasn't he wasn't being sectarian. Yeah. I mean
1: clearly there are still elements of sectarianism within the system, but there is this sense for many people that Belfast is Northern Ireland, or Belfast plus bits of Antrim and bits of County Down. Really that is Northern Ireland. And this sense of, well, if you do what's necessary for Belfast, then everyone else actually benefits. But actually, if you're over here they don't. And you know, and even Martin McGuinness would said, well, you know, the best thing you could do for employment in Derry was to get a road to Belfast. And actually, politicians of all political backgrounds have, have let the Northwest down. And it was very frustrating working for an MLA because when I was a councillor, I could get things done. If I wanted the gullies cleaned, I'd get them cleaned. But Working for an MLA, and it was the same for the MLA, It's very difficult indeed to get things done. It's really frustrating.
0: And why is that?
1: I think there's several issues. Culture is what it comes down to. I think there is this long period of both direct rule and a non-functioning assembly and executive meant that civil servants believe that they should be allowed to get on with the job and they don't expect any level of political interference. And you now have a problem where we have basically, when the executive and assembly were running, you had a two-party system and the civil service seemed to interpret their role as supporting those two parties and not being very helpful to the other parties. And Infrastructure is clearly the most difficult department of all. And I was doing uh, a conference uh, a few months ago with a former permanent secretary who completely agreed with me and said there is a problem and said that the pump for infrastructure is the last bastion of professional privilege consisting of officials who don't believe they should be told what to do. And that is someone who was very senior within the civil
0: service and why, why has that persisted? Because if you think about how power operates in any democratic society, the politicians who are elected have a vested interest in making the system work. They're going to get blamed if it falls over, whether they're directly culpable for it or not. And if their constituents can't get things fixed, gullies and roads, whatever it might be, they are going to get into trouble for that. So how, how is it that the people who have such a vested interest, who on paper have the power to tell civil servants what to do, are incapable of enforcing their wishes? I think there's two things there, Sam.
1: The first is this, the structure of accountability. The structure of accountability ap- operates as a negative rather than positive. So the accountability structure means that MLAs can block things, but it doesn't mean that they can get things done. And the second problem is about culture. And it's exactly you see, it's exactly the same in the PSNI. I mean, it's easier to explain in the PSNI than it is within the sort of departments, but it's the same thing. So we've converted from the RUC into the PSNI. There's almost no one today in the PSNI who is in the RUC, very few. Yeah. Yet the cultural blockages within the PSNI are not entirely different from the RUC. In particular, you look around gender violence and you look around the... Allegations that are being investigated into PSNI officers. And what you see is that culture operates like this lead cloud over the top of an organisation, which is very difficult to shift. So you get a generational shift in personnel, but the culture continues to operate. And I think it's the same thing within the civil service, that the culture predates the current generation of officials It goes back to when you had direct rule and when civil servants were left to get on with things. And the expectation of the civil servants is that they should be left to get on with it because they actually don't have that much respect for
0: MLAs and believe they can do the job better. And yet, actually, when they are left to get on with it, they don't like it. They say, this is outrageous. We don't want to have this level of power. Yeah, this is true. But
1: equally, I mean, if you look with RHI, for example, you know, the, the politicians failed. And the civil servants failed. You know, it's, it's both of them. And in a way, the, the, the politicians allowed their view of policy to get in the way of good practice. And the civil service, well, you know better than I what the civil
0: service failings were. I mean, they were just extraordinary, really. And lo- lots of it in that instance seemed to be out of this you know, the, the, the benign view of it is that they wanted Stormont to work. They believed in the peace process. They believed in the Good Friday Agreement. And they almost believed in it too much to the extent that they were going to turn a blind eye to anything that they thought might destabilise things. So these guys are doing really bad things, but we need these guys or else this whole thing might fall apart. I mean, is that, is that still the sort of scenario today or is it just incompetence, people out of control, people who cannot be controlled? there are levels of incompetence
1: i don't think the the staff valuation frameworks work effectively Um, i don't think you necessarily get the best people rising to the top i mean clearly you do have some people that are very good you also are drawing permanent secretaries from too narrow a field of people typically they are the same gender the same schools the same religious background And that's not sufficiently diverse. That's that's not me having a go at any particular part of our society. But good senior management requires diversity of background. And we have not had that. We are not ensuring that the best people get to the top. I had a separate level of frustration about the operations of the executive office and also the Department for Justice. I don't feel that always the governance structures are as good as they should be. The executive office feels to me too much like a two-party fiefdom, not sufficiently like about doing what's necessary. And the result of that is, you know, I had conversations with the audit office about my concerns, about some aspects of that. So there are particular programmes, and in a sense there's a parallel with what you've reported on at Belfast City Council. The, the, The relationship with certain groups and the way policy is developed I don't feel it's actually sufficiently based on best practice. And uh, my feeling was that the executive office and to a lesser extent, the Department for Justice were basically, the officials were saying, look, this is not your business.
0: And that left me very concerned. Well, let me ask you about the party that you were supporting as part of your work in Stormont, the SDLP. They've had a Dreadful few years as a party. Um, they've got some very talented people: Matthew O'Toole, Claire Hanna, Nicola Mallon. Now outside the party, um, lots and lots of people, and yet they just keep going down. Um, the most recent Belfast Telegraph poll, I think, has them on seven percentage points. I mean, that's you know you're, you're you're in really extraordinary territory there for a party that once was so dominant within nationalism in Northern Ireland. Have they a future at this point? Clearly,
1: the SDRP has. A serious problem, and and yeah, the person you didn't mention was Colin Eastwood, who is who is a brilliant communicator. Of course, not a great party organizer, but a brilliant communicator, uh, one of the best in politics. Matthew, I think, is the the strongest MLA, but that's not what people are voting around. People are voting around basically one view of the constitutional question, or the other, or else the Alliance Party view. So you've, you've, it's very difficult for the Unionist Party and for the SDLP to make any headway in, in that context. Have the SDLP got a future? I think we have to... I mean, I, it's almost as much about what happens in the South as it is what happens in Northern Ireland, because assuming the possibility that Sinn Féin enters government in the South next time... And, and they don't perform as well as people expect, then I think the shine falls off Sinn Féin. And actually, I think the other, all the parties, and also I think journalism, has, has let Sinn Féin off the hook a bit. You know, there are some good people in Sinn Féin, some strong politicians, but in terms of the quality of the MLAs, it's not that great. In terms of the quality of the TDs, not that great. Even some of the people at the very senior levels in Sinn Féin that I have debated with, I haven't thought that they were great performers. Um, so I think Sinn Féin will have problems going forward. But whether the SDLP will still be around by the time that, I mean, clearly you need to reinvigorate the leadership of, of the SDLP. I think the other thing to say, Sam, is that fundamentally the SDLP represents two very different wings. So my background is Protestant by birth and by baptism. I'm an atheist by outlook. I'm socially liberal, and half the party is comfortable with me. Half the party is very firmly Catholic in outlook, and it is very difficult to bridge those divides. Um, having said that, um, I mean, there was recent polling, looked into detail of you know, what SDLP voters believe. And I think 44% have socially liberal views on abortion, something like 70% have socially liberal views on gay marriage. The rest are split evenly between those that are against and those who've got no view. So actually, the majority of SDLP supporters would be social democrats with socially liberal views, but not all the party representatives would, would take that same approach. And I think that is where there are tensions. And clearly, there's an age difference. The SDRP has to be seen to be relevant to a younger electorate, uh, whereas perhaps the older electorate that was with John Hume is more influential in terms of party policy. And you can't generate support from young adults
0: if you don't have a socially liberal outlook. The STLP, I suppose, has become more socially liberal over recent yes. years on things like abortion. Um, and they've also got a much younger cadre of representatives, you know, a really impressive lineup if you look at it objectively, just in terms of their abilities, as you said. So if they've done that, what more can they do? I don't know.
1: I mean, they, in a way, you have to wait for the, the, the gloss to fall off Sinn Féin and... All the focus at the moment in terms of negativity of politics is around the DUP. But we have Sinn Féin pulling things down. You know, whatever your view on the constitutional framework, you have to make this place work. I mean, and I've had debates with senior people in Sinn Féin where I've said it has to be in the interests of both the DUP and Sinn Féin to make this place work. I mean, it makes no political sense whatsoever for the DUP to make devolution a failure. Potentially, Northern Ireland will be the only place in the UK not to have devolution. We had the Chancellor of the Exchequer a few weeks ago saying that every part of England will be subject to a devolution agreement within the near future. So you then have Northern Ireland as the only place in the UK without functioning devolution. That does not work in terms of arguing the case for the UK. But equally... Sinn Féin has to recognise that there's going to be real problems in practice either integrating Northern Ireland into a united Ireland or else persuading people in the South to vote for it. If you can't make Northern Ireland work, if you've got a fundamentally inefficient system, then how do you actually appeal to voters in the South to say this is what works for everybody? And I know that Sinn Féin are always going to say, and they have said it to me repeatedly, all the surveys show that people in the South want Irish unity, so we don't have to worry about that. But this is a theoretical conversation. Once it becomes a practical one, and you talk about the difficulties of Northern Ireland, then becomes less attractive. And we have to be honest, Northern Ireland does not work effectively. You know, we've got a National Health Service That is just crumbling. You know, it's bad everywhere, it's bad in England, but our system is just a complete scandal. And that's because we haven't got politicians that have got enough in agreement to actually get things over the line. An education system that's wasting money because we've got people separated from from the very earliest ages. How do you reconcile society when you still got people, students, who only meet someone? From a different background, when they go to university or college, this is just mad. You compare the south to the north. In the south, they've got much greater levels of engagement by students going on into college and university, developing skills. In the north, we have far too many. Northern Ireland, we have far too many kids that that intellectually drop out from maybe the age of 13 because they don't see the point, and then actually completely fall out of the
0: system. Let's talk about Irish unity. You've written this very interesting book, a new Ireland, a new union, a new society, a 10-year plan. But let's let's go back to the start. You're from England. Mm -hmm. You say you're from a Protestant background, even if you're not practicing now. Why do you support Irish unity? Because Northern Ireland
1: doesn't work. Because Stormont is dysfunctional. Um, I made a presentation to uh, a committee of the a few weeks ago. And it was interesting that my perception was that none of the senators there wanted to hear what I was saying, which is that Irish unity has to involve the abolition of Stormont. You can't... Stormont is dysfunctional. The the way the numbers stack up, even within Irish unity, is not going to be made to work, because unionism doesn't have a majority... Nationalism, stroke Republicanism doesn't have a majority. The, the non-aligned don't have a majority. So you're always going to have that institutional stalemate, even within a United Irish state. So you actually have to move beyond Stolten, because, and and I'm sitting here in Derry, and okay, we've had some good news today about an extra three hundred jobs coming along, but typically. You know, we've got the highest unemployment of anywhere in Northern Ireland. We've got the lowest employment rate. We've got real problems with our elements of our skill base here because we haven't got a university that we need. Um, and that's, that's just, that, this place has been failed throughout the history of Stormont. And if you want to create something that works here, Invest NI has consistently let the city down and other institutions of the north have but IDA Ireland is a much more tuned in organisation much stronger in terms of its influence over the Irish government and it is able to get things done in the way that investor NI hasn't and i think that the structures that we've had and the culture that's been built up over the years just means that we can't actually get out we need to basically a, a restructure and, that, and it's not just about the economy. If you look at the comparison of expenditure between Northern Ireland and other places, it's very telling where we spend more money. Obviously, security, well, that's taken, but we spend a lot more on sports and culture. Why is it the government believes that its role is to put more money into sports and culture rather than actually addressing the problems of the National Health Service and our school system. You know, this is, this is where our account, system of accountability has gone wrong. Because, and you can see this in the opinion polling, in particular around unionism, where the protocol is shown as being really important and the National Health Service isn't. Whereas we've got people dying. You know, I need a hernia operation. I've been on the waiting list for three and a half years. And when I phoned up the hospital last week, they say, well, you're getting somewhere near to being seen, but it will be a long time before. So effectively, for for lots and lots of treatments and neurological disorders are, are terribly, terribly slow in being addressed. You're given a solution that is either going to the private sector or accepting you're unlikely to get treated. And and how did we get to this point? We got this point because we've not had politicians that are willing to prioritise what needs to be done. And the structure of accountability is focused on the wrong things. So yes, if you go knocking on doors, sometimes people say, you've got to sort out the National Health Service, but too often it's about
0: identity. And if we go back 30 years and thought that there was anybody in nationalism that was arguing, that having Stormont was a good thing for United Ireland. It would have seemed a crazy idea. So we, we, we've moved an incredible distance in some ways where it is now almost mainstreamed within nationalism, North and South, that it's a very serious and maybe the preferred option. But isn't, isn't there a problem, therefore, um, if what you're saying is correct, that Stormont is essentially irretrievable, it's just so badly broken, might as well forget about it. If that is the case, isn't it much harder, therefore, to persuade unionism moderate unionism to either go along with the idea of Irish unity in a grudging way or to get centrist voters to embrace it and people who like the idea of Northern Ireland but they like the sense that Northern Ireland has become something that's a bit different and if you get rid of it completely in terms of Stormont and its own institutions that inevitably goes doesn't it so is, isn't there a double-edged sword there that Um, It might be good for building a better state, but it's harder getting you to the point, or it makes it harder to get you to the point where you get that state. Well,
1: you're certainly developing resistance, but Stormont is no longer a Unionist Protestant entity. You know, so Unionists can't get what they want through Stormont anyway, because our our demographics have changed. So I don't see the argument for retaining Stormont to keep Unionists happy, because by the nature of unionism, it's not going to be happy with Irish unity. You know, you can't persuade people who want to be part of the UK. There's a good idea if they won't. But one of the reasons for me why Irish unity is a good idea is because we need the economies of scale of being part of a single island. You know, we've got two health systems, neither of which is brilliant. The south perhaps arguably in a better state than the north at the moment, but neither system operates as it should. The South system needs to be reformed in in, uh, accordance with uh, Schlondacare Uh, and the North system, Northern Ireland system, needs to be fundamentally reformed so that we've got uh, uh, less duplication. But the duplication should involve more cooperation North and South. Whether we have Irish unity or not, we should have a single free at point of uh, delivery healthcare system across the whole island. And things are moving slowly in that direction in the south. And, you know, the latest thing with the the removal of accommodation charges for, for hospital states. I mean, you know, the the discussion around uh, removing GP fees f- uh, for, for larger classes of people. So things are moving, but it, we, we need to move to a better, organised, more efficient system of government in Northern Ireland. And Stormont, I don't think, can deliver that. We have to recognise that actually Southern Ireland is better a government than Northern Ireland is. Actually, Brexit showed it's better a government than the UK is. You know, why is it that the Southern government prepared for Brexit? And David Cameron gave an instruction to Senior Civil Service not to prepare for Brexit. And that's part of the reason why Brexit has caused such chaos, because the Civil Service were instructed not to prepare for it. I mean, this is not how you do good government.
0: You say in this book that it makes sense for the Republic now to invest more in Northern Ireland, in infrastructure, in other aspects of government here, because at some point they're going to be responsible for the whole place. So it's a it's a logical thing for them to do. But you also say in this book that the UK should be investing more in infrastructure in Northern Ireland. You say that there's hangover from the Troubles, there are billions of pounds that should have been invested here, that weren't, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. Isn't there a bit of double counting there? If it's good for the Republic to invest in this thing that's ultimately going to be theirs, doesn't that mean that it's not then not good sense for the British government to put money into somewhere that is going to be another jurisdiction at some point, if indeed that's correct?
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm being
0: a bit optimistic probably.
1: But I mean, I, I you would hope that the UK government would have enough goodwill to, to people who recognise themselves as British citizens here, to recognise that they've got a duty of care to people who regard themselves as British, who live within Northern Ireland. And you'd hope that the Irish government would have a duty of care to people who regard themselves, recognise themselves as Irish citizens who live in Northern Ireland. There's things that need to be done, but you'd want there to be goodwill on both sides. Now, clearly Brexit has damaged the relationship between the two governments, but in a sense, there is a moral responsibility by both the Irish and the British governments to make
0: Northern Ireland work as well as it can. The, the DUP are not the only party that boasts at election time that Northern Ireland has the lowest rates, household rates in real terms of the entire UK. We pay less and they boast that we get more expenditure. That's not the sort of argument that is going to make the British government say, you know what, you should get even more. We haven't been giving you enough. Or are they not much more likely to say, pay a bit more yourselves. There's lots of big houses in Northern Ireland. There's lots of people driving fancy cars, make them pay more.
1: Yeah, and that's, that's a fair argument. I mean, I, I'm not trying to encourage the British government to put more revenue funding into Northern Ireland. I believe that it's capital funding that's needed. We have not invested enough. You look at the road network, you drove over from Belfast to, to Derry, and you know how bad the road is. So we, you know, we have to do something about the infrastructure of this place. And why the hell do we not have a full-size university in Derry? I mean, that mistake was made in the 1960s. We are now losing so many people. And actually, the most the people we're losing are unionists. you know, because we haven't got enough university places. And the figures I saw a few years ago show that most of the graduates going out of the two universities here then go into the public sector. So you haven't got enough graduates here for the private sector and that leads into the small and medium-sized firms not being able to grow big enough because they're not able to attract the graduates that would assist them to grow into larger businesses. I mean you know this is a self-damaging process where we don't have enough investment in the university sector and that means that we don't have enough
0: students emerging as graduates. One of the boldest arguments I think, the bravest arguments that you make in this book is to effectively cut the subvention through Northern Ireland, um, getting rid of public sector workers. In, in in layman's terms, you say our public sector is too big. It's bigger than the Republics. It's bigger than England's. And if we're being serious about this, we need to get ourselves get get our get our house in order effectively. Why is it that that argument, if it's, a, if it's a logical argument that is a precursor to Irish unity, why is it never being made by the SDLP or Sinn Féin? In fact, why is it that the contrary argument is being made, that we're not getting enough money from Westminster, it's all the fault of the Tories? Where, where, where are we in terms of the maturity in the debate about these issues? In terms of the,
1: the numbers of public sector workers... I would want us to have greater cooperation north and south, so that we have more efficient systems. And if you have more cooperation north and south, then you have the opportunity to reduce your number of public workers. So I'm not suggesting that we sack people, but that actually, if you have greater efficiency through north and south cooperation, then you cease to need to have the same number of people, and you don't have to recruit. <coughs> you don't have to, to recruit the, the, the same number uh, going forward. And and you can see the, the same with you know PS and Garda as well. Come to that. Why, I think that it goes back, what I've said before, Sam, to the, the structure of accountability. That actually, we, we haven't got people saying to the political parties, you need to have a more efficient public sector. So there is this, it, it's this lazy conversation that we haven't got enough money. And you hear this from Conor Murphy quite a bit in terms of the health service. The problem with the health service is that it is being underfunded. Well, no, the problem with the health service is not that it's been underfunded. The problem is that we haven't reformed it. The health service is is like Leon Trotsky's permanent revolution. The health service requires to be permanently reformed, sometimes in ways that are actually revolutionary. You can't sit still. That doesn't mean I want privatisation. Doesn't mean that I want the private finance initiative. But you have to recognise that medicine and healthcare change the whole time. You need to refocus what you're spending money on. And the idea of having lots and lots of knackered buildings around the place, that is not how you deliver effective healthcare. And we need to have people in politics that have got the guts to say, we need to reform things and need to argue it. And actually what you have is partly because we've got a five plus party system people are terrified to make the arguments because there's always going to be criticised. So there is that lack of continuity of message between the political parties, even when it's in their interest to agree on things.
0: You you say in the book on this issue that a reduction in the number of public sector workers in Northern Ireland is needed essentially um, to the same proportion as the Republic in England, and that would assist in making Northern Ireland financially self-sufficient. Um, you say that could take place on a, over a gradual basis, um, all redundancy, pension, restructuring costs would be met by the UK, etc. Cetera, et cetera. I mean, does that mean that right now, as the subvention sits, you don't think it's viable for the Republic to take on the cost of Northern Ireland unless there are these radical measures? Broadly, yes.
1: I mean, we, we know no one, I think, is talking about a border poll tomorrow. If they are, they're mad. So we have to go through a process. We have to go through the process of agreeing things. And and another point about this is that my belief is that we need a two-stage referendum because a lot of what you're talking about is going to be subject to negotiation. It's, for example, who takes on the liabilities for state employees, for public pensions. No one's going to readily agree to it in advance of the first referendum. These things have to be argued through. So my preference is a two-stage referendum. My view is the way you ideally want is you have a, a referendum in principle, you
0: then negotiate, and then you have a referendum that is decided. And it, it isn't the great weakness of that, aside from the issue with the Good Friday Agreement, I think it's Brendan O'Leary makes the point mm-hmm. that if you have two referendums, it's a bit like Brexit. You're repeating the problem, you've decided where you're going, but you don't know what the destination is going to be what on earth happens if in the negotiations unionism or nationalism or whoever decides we don't like this we're not supporting this any longer well you've already decided to do it what happens yes i mean fair point fair point i mean there's a lot of this stuff that that
1: we really have to talk through because there are problems with every direction of travel here you know There's problems if we don't go for Irish unity, there's problems if we do, there's problems if we negotiate everything, there's problems if we don't negotiate everything. So, yeah, maybe you're right and maybe I'm wrong about this. And, you know, I'm not going to argue with Brendan O'Leary because, you know, he's a senior
0: academic and I'm not. But, yeah, we need to talk about this. And really the truth is that we're only really starting in the last few years to talk about this seriously so, so if you cross the border, if you go to Dublin for the weekend or you go to Donegal for your holidays or whatever it might be The South feels like a very expensive country these days because it is an expensive country It's expensive to get a pint, it's expensive to buy a pint of milk um, Isn't there a difficulty there that for people in Northern Ireland who are undecided about this Whatever they are, Protestant, Catholic unionist nationalist background, but they're a bit cautious about jumping into something before they know exactly what's happening. Their sense of it is that while wages are higher in the Republic, and we know that, and that's beyond any doubt, it's a very expensive place to live.
1: The the reality is that the surveys that have been done indicate that if once you uh, allow for higher wages and the higher cost of goods, you're still better off in the Irish economy than you are in the Northern economy. That's the reality. Yeah. Both sides have problems with housing costs, and the analysis shows that actually it's not that much different in terms of the North and the South. There are problems with the cost of housing. Clearly, there are things that the Irish government needs to do to improve the way the Republic works, one of which is it needs to sort out the housing crisis. Another is it needs to do things around health. Um, But equally, you don't want a big bang. You want a process of evolution. You want... I mean. Clearly, we want Northern Ireland to be more like the South. You know, as an English person who comes over here, that—that that is the truth. We want a less sectarian society. We want a more social liberal society. We want a society with an economy that's stronger than North's is at the moment.
0: Lots of this is about the positive case for Irish unity, how it could make Northern Ireland better, how it could make us more prosperous, how it could maybe not get rid of sectarianism, but it could lessen sectarianism, how it could make the system of government better, all of these things, which are all clearly possible in certain scenarios. But isn't there also the possibility that this goes horribly wrong and that it's a botched unity, that it's a unity that brings lots of death and suffering? What do you think is the most dangerous way in which unity could come about and therefore the way that people should try to avoid
1: we need to recognise our society needs to be reconciled. I mean, I think what the British government's doing around legacy is really unhelpful. Uh, I think that we have got an incredibly layered society within Northern Ireland. People talk about the unionist community and the loyalist community. There are lots of different unionist and loyalist communities. I've, I've done conferences in County Down. And it's a completely different place from Derek. Just, you know, it's, people talk different, they think different, they, their daily lives are completely different. And I don't think we've actually got our heads around just how layered society Northern Ireland is, more than England and probably more than the South is. And I think we, we need to spend time in, in talking with each other. And I think, to answer your question properly, it is making simple suggestions, making simple statements, making assumptions about how other people think. We actually need to have a proper
0: dialogue. What is the role that Sinn Féin plays in this, do you think, in terms of either advancing the cause of Irish unity or hindering the cause of Irish unity? Would Irish unity be further on, do you think, if Sinn Féin didn't exist? Yes. Why? Uh,
1: Because... They don't do what I've just said. We need to do, which is I don't think they properly talk to people from other backgrounds. I, I was doing an event uh, a few years ago, where I said we have to get to a position where both the DUP and Sinn Féin recognise that it's in their interest to make Northern Ireland work. And the person who was alongside me, who was at the time a very senior person within Sinn Féin, said. There is no way that i'll ever do anything to try and make Northern Ireland work and there are parts of Sinn Fein that believe the best prospects for them winning a vote is to make Northern Ireland a failed state, a failure. Now we have to persuade Sinn Fein it's not in their interests. Now i know that's not the position of all of Sinn Fein and i don't think it's the position of senior people in Sinn Fein today but Sinn Féin, like the rest of our society, is a very divided organisation. I spoke about the divisions within the SDLP. The divisions within Sinn Féin are just as significant. And one of those is whether you want genuinely to make Northern Ireland a place that works. And I think we have to persuade Sinn Féin, all of Sinn Féin, that it is in their interest to make this place work as well as possible. But if you look closely at what is happening within Sinn Féin today, the leadership have got a really difficult job because of... Those divisions that I talk about. How you win younger people over who are not attracted to what the Provisionals did in the Troubles, while at the same time keeping on board the soldiers who were in the the Provisionals, the people who lost family, the people who've got a commitment to what happened in the past. How you keep those two wings of the party together is a very difficult task, just as it is as with the SDRP, to keep people on board who are hardline Catholic in terms of religious, as well as people who are socially liberal. And in a sense, those divisions have never been exposed very much. I mean, there are certain things that are happening in the South at the moment that that suggest tensions there. But I mean, Sinn Féin has got a difficult job to keep everyone together, but it's important that they do not alienate more people than necessary.
0: We would not have been having this conversation, I don't think, in these terms before Brexit. Brexit transformed how people here thought about the possibility of Irish unity. Do you think now that Irish unity is inevitable and it will ultimately happen however it comes about, whenever it comes about? Or do you think this is a pendulum that has swung this way and it might swing back again?
1: I think very few things in life are inevitable. Death is, taxes are, Pretty much everything else is on the line, one way or another. Um, So it's not inevitable. I think it is likely. I think that we need to actually work out what we want out of this. I wouldn't say it's a pendulum, because I think the middle ground is now so large that Northern Ireland can never be a union state again. It is a a place where we have three minorities. And the important thing is that our minorities work well together. I get on well with certain people within the DUP. I get on well with certain people in the Alliance. I get on very well with some people in the SDLP, and also within Sinn Féin. And I think that's what we need to do. We need to have respect for people from different religions and different backgrounds and understand why they take the view they they, they do. And I think not enough people at senior levels in politics do that. I mean, just one example, Sam. I... I was in Stormont a few years ago while I was working for Sinead, and I was astonished at the lack of contact between people from different parties. They just sit at different tables, they don't talk to each other, and it it is really quite weird. How do we expect people in our society to develop relationships across the divide when our politicians have very limited contact across the divide? Paul, thank you very much for your
0: time. Cheers. This episode of The Bell Tell was produced by myself, Sam McBride. Sound design was by Graham Davidson. To read the print version of my interview with Paul Gosling, visit BelfastTelegraph.co.uk.
1: When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers.